0: provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports, and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, so yeah, I know, it's been a month. And uh, one thing after another, just got back from Atlanta, had an amazing clinic there. Coming home from Europe, I got this nasty bug, and this is probably the first day that I can actually speak where someone could even understand what the hell I'm saying. And uh, I thought it would be really cool to reach out to the populace and say, hey, what do you want to talk about? And uh, let's just do that. And good old sweet Benny Gifford decided he'd come on with me. And I thought that his line of questioning was really interesting. So here we are with sweet Benny Gifford.
1: Howdy, Mr. Diaz.
0: And all. So tell me, brother, what is it that's on your mind? What's burning your chest that you want to talk about?
1: Well, nothing's burning my chest because my uh, my natural uh, chest hair makes the shape of a heart, so nothing can break that loving barrier. But what's on my mind is it's off season for me and for a lot of people, and I've been in the sport for four years, but that is the extent of my competitive or athletic training of any kind. And so, even after four years of this, I am still not so clear on what the hell I should be doing right now because. If you talk to Yancey or you talk to Hunter or Robert Killian or Bracken Crocker, Dennis Welch or you, everyone's got a different freaking opinion of what you should be doing with your offseason. You know, people say don't run for a solid two months. Then people like Albin uh, will ski for like six months and not run at all. Then some people say you got to maintain 60 miles a week to maintain your aerobic base. So that's the first thing I want to chat about is – Obviously, if these successful people are pushing these particular mentalities, it's working in some way. So why do these things work? Uh, Who are they working for and which ones do you subscribe to?
0: All right. Well, uh, first of all, I'm going to get global with you. If you look at Eastern philosophy, they adhere to the theory that there is a yin and a yang in our lives, right? Right. And so everything is cyclical. And if you look at everything that we do, everything that we exist with, it is cyclical. There's nothing in our lives that is linear. You cannot continue to be progressive without an intention of regression and be successful. All right, so from a standpoint of thinking in those terms, relate it to athleticism. If you keep pushing, Where does it end up? I can tell you that commonly it ends up in injury. Or you'll burn out. You'll experience some malady that will take you out and force you to regress. So better to plan for it than be suffered to it. Now, having said that, I think that there's no standard for off-season or regression. It depends on who you are, what you've done, and at what intensity you've taken your training. Now, if you come into the season as a recreational athlete, and excuse the pun, but let's just say that you're kind of half-assed with your training all through the season to begin with, you've really never done anything to cause harm or overload in such a degree that you need to recover from it. Mm. But at the same token, if you're a progressive and aggressive athlete, we're leading into your A races, you've been really taking it to the mat. Well, hey,
1: if I can interrupt you, that's a distinction that I have yet to hear anybody make. And I think is really important. As you said, assuming you are a progressive athlete who is actually progressing in their training and taking it seriously, not you know, somebody who's messed up their training or, or, or whatever, then you've never really done any damage to yourself. Therefore, an offseason may not even be needed. And that is huge because every year I've thought, okay, now I've figured out the next level, you know, the final level of how to train like a professional athlete. And then every year I'm like, wow, I can do so much more. And so it makes me think every year, have you even really damaged yourself enough to justify an off season? So that's cool. All
0: right. Well, I'm going to get ahead of our conversation just a little bit because I think it pertains to what we're talking about. You had mentioned that you wanted to talk about periodization. Now, if you look at historical training modalities for Olympic athletes, their progression may stem from a four-year stint. They may begin on their journey four years back of an Olympic event. And the the training from a, a general consensus is planned and uh, there's progression planned into the training leading up to their their major event. And everything that they do is thought out. And the regressions in their training is pre-planned. And so when you start to develop this data, when you start to see the cause and effect relationship with your training, you could start to understand where it becomes important to take breaks on occasion. And so reflecting back on our sport and what people do and the reason people are not quite as apt to concern themselves with an off season, it's generally because there was never any rhyme or reason to their training to begin with. Yeah, you know, there's no uh, progression in their training other than taking on bigger and bigger challenges throughout the year. And and I I, I take ends with that when I'm coaching people, where they're they're taking these. These events on like um, visiting a buffet it just happens to be in the tray it looks kind of tasty so they pick it up and eat it right and so there's no rhyme or reason to the way that they're approaching their their season really to speak of other than the events that their friends are doing and they're convinced wow this is going to be fun and we're all going to go off and do this and they may not be even adequately prepared And for the most part, I find um, an abundance of under or inappropriate training in the sport, which is kind of sad, but it makes sense because it's a new sport and people are, as you suggested yourself, you're still fetching for the solution. You don't know quite what it is that you should or should not be doing. I I run into this a lot. When you look at the scheme of things, let's say, for example, I'm going to refer to Uh, John Doe elite athlete that I might be coaching. The the first thing that I would have him do in the course of looking at the new season is determine what the A races are going to be. And if I have my way, I'll align them where the more intense, shorter uh, distance events are first. And they're going to be progressively leading towards the longer, more enduring events. Because it's easier to develop the system if the system understands what you're trying to create for it. Where if you're trying to do a stadium race today, a beast tomorrow, you know, a super the day after that, huh. you know, you're, you're just randomly throwing yourself at these events and there's no rhyme or reason to the training to prepare for them.
1: And That's I think- a potentially troublesome approach uh, for me because, you know, the shortest event even offered in OCR is my focus and it's at the end of the year. So it's almost like, even though that's my most important race, I know I'm going to do other races throughout the year. And yeah, I'm going to race hard. So I guess I'm potentially shooting myself in the foot there by wanting to do like a seven-mile savage race in you know April, May, or June when my short course championships is in October.
0: Um, well, so let's kind of break it down. If, if, you're, if you're trying... Well, if, I'll give you an example. With VJ. what we did this past season is I would not allow him to consider a beast distance event. Mm. Um, the, the furthest distance we would look at would be a super, but at the same token, there was a lot of stadium races and sprint races involved in all of that. So I think that there's probably a window of opportunity between a super and even a stadium race where you can train appropriately. Okay. But when you start going beyond nine miles, then the energy system that you're soliciting for is a little different. And if you are going to race successfully at that distance, your training has to take a, a complete departure from the type of racing you do at the shorter distances. And I'm assuming, again, that you're, you're trying to be successful, meaning you're hoping to win these races. Yeah. Now, now, in your case, given what you told me about your focus being a 3K event, I think a stadium race is probably a good place for you. There's plenty of those throughout the season. Okay. Uh, I think that um, doing a sprint event is not out of the way. I think you need very well. I, I know that you need to be successful in the in the obstacles, and I think the three k is appropriate for that. You're gonna you're gonna get that run grab run kind of uh, benefit under your belt, but then as you get closer to that three k event, your focus needs to be a lot more directed towards your running skills. Mm. But, uh, you know, to just kind of randomly go off and do, like, um, as you suggested, a hill event or, or a mountain-style event where it's going to carry to nine miles or further, it's definitely going to tr- detract from your, your ability to hold that high-end speed you're going to need for a 3K.
1: Thankfully, I don't have a single event that piques my interest over a, you know, six to seven-mile savage race. Uh, except for the South Africa race, and that's historically been after the World Championships when it's it's kind of off-season, do-whatever-you-want type thing. So um, I guess that's good. I don't really have any conflicting interest there.
0: Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with doing a little bit longer event, but you want to be careful that it doesn't uh, get in the middle of what you're hoping to train for. Um, right. So as you suggested, doing something like that after your A race that's just fun, you know, just do something that you're having a good time with. Right. And, and so the concept of periodization in, in the sport, I think mm-hmm. that, first of all, I don't think it exists. Uh, there may be a few athletes that have some quasi-approach to periodization in their season, mm-hmm. but for the most <laughs> part, because of the number of races that people do, it's really difficult to really – put down a, a strong periodized process, you're very, very focused on trying to develop whatever specific energy systems that you're hoping to develop along with your strength. Uh, it's just too random, you know, so. Um, now, is I, that
1: is that a function of, of people's inability to stick to a plan, or you think it's just not possible the way the series are set up?
0: I think that it's, for the most part, I think it's people just don't really understand.
1: Yeah. And
0: because this sport, was spawned from not so much competition but more camaraderie. People do these races cuz they really really enjoy the experience with their friends. And you know, from that having success, maybe ending up on an age group podium or something like this, lends people to take a little harder look at it and they start to wonder, I wonder if I really got serious, what can I what can I draw from this? How much better yeah. can I be? This is the calls I get all the time, when people are considering having me coach them. They, you know, the conversation starts like this: You know, I've been racing for a year now, year and a half now, and I've done seven or eight races, and I'm really, really enjoying it, and I have the time and uh, the where to for to, to, kind of see where I can take it. You know, so they're they're kind of they're kind of just you know shooting in the dark, and they just want to see maybe if they got a little help. What could they do with what their races look like? And yeah. and so, you know, that's a complete departure from some of the other organized sports. For example, you know, me coming from triathlon, a triathlete may have an A race, might be Ironman Kona, and then another A race, which might be a qualifier to get to Kona. But for the most part, the season is all about progression, building in hopes that they're going to have the fitness they need, in the event that they qualify to actually get to Kona, um, but they're generally not random about their approach to the races. You're not going right. to see the guys that are successful at the long course events also being really successful at the sprint races. It's just right. not their style. And they, I think, they intuitively know that their training does not provide for them to be successful at the shorter distance and vice versa. Yeah,
1: uh, with that in mind, I mean this. I'm assuming you're okay with us talking about some stuff that I didn't preface beforehand. Sure. But um, you talking about that makes me also want to know what's your opinion as to why, I don't know if you watched coverage, I doubt it because you don't even go to most races, but of uh, John Albin's ability to not only win the 15K uh, championships, but to handily win the 3K championships that had 44 obstacles in it, and it was 1.8 miles it was relatively flat which i thought was going to be johns downfall was how flat it was but he had a massive lead on ryan atkins which to say that is ridiculous in a 1.8 mile race and watching him he doesn't move through obstacles that quickly he's just very efficient and he and he you know he's not going to fail anything but he he doesn't do anything drastic he's not extremely fast he's actually kind of just average as far as the elite field goes on speed of obstacles and then I looked at his foot speed and I was like he's not he's running fast but he's not, you know, blazing people off the trails but all I can think of is you know his overall ability to maintain a higher pace has got to be coming from his insane aerobic development to where his you know he never hits that that oxygen depletion to where he's I mean if you watch his face at the finish line or anywhere in a race he just looks like he's chilling and it's in so I'm just trying to figure out what makes a guy who runs obscene amounts of miles, whose speciality is mountain and sky running, what allows a guy like that to put an entire world field to shame on a 1.8 mile race?
0: Well, you have to consider the caliber of runner that he is globally. I mean, he he's good, short, long, all points in between, simply because he's just got such a storied pedigree in his running. I mean, this guy does a lot of running. Mm. And when you talk about a world class field in this sport what are you really talking about i mean for the most part the the people that are in this sport are not what i would consider professional pedigree athletes if you show me a guy well uh, let me let me kind of regress i had a conversation with uh, ryan wood uh, just before world championships and he told me that he purposely sacrificed his running speed in order to improve on his strength by trying to put on more muscle, which he knew would cause him to sacrifice some speed. And his theory was that his speed was such that he could afford to give some of it away and hopes of gaining the muscle that where he was lacking. And I, it resonated with me because here's a guy that came up as a collegiate runner. He's got the kind of speed that is competitive at a collegiate level. And when you get right down to it, there's not a lot of guys in the sport yet that, that have that type of pedigree. And I think the problem is is that it stem. when you talk about a professional field, you got to go back to the money again. You know, a guy that can really run, he's looking at opportunities that exist that can pay him better than the sport of OCR right now. And yeah. I, th- I think what's going to happen is probably within the next five years, I hope, that there's gonna be uh, an influx of cash that's gonna introduce a whole nother field of athletes that's gonna make a big, big difference in the sport. So getting back to someone like John Alban and, and looking at Ryan Atkins, these guys did not just one day decide that they're gonna ramp their mileage up. They've been at it for a long time. And it's mm. it's 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 a natural progression for them. So you start uh, when people talk about developing an aerobic base when you've got you know 10 years of history of consistent running this is what i'm talking about this is what you, this is like a very very mature running body where you get somebody that just decided they're going to get into the sport and you know a peak week for them maybe 30 40 miles worth of running and that's a labor for them Their body has not developed well enough for them to have the attributes that they seek. And uh, a lot of times it's not even a function of really have, for example, as you know, with me doing VO2 testing, I'm looking at threshold. So what I look for someone to do before they start shifting away from one type of energy system is see that there's some return on the investment. So someone might say, I'm going to just blindly follow a program that suggests stay aerobic for four weeks or eight weeks for that matter. Maybe it wasn't enough. Maybe the approach to the training wasn't adequate. So they didn't get the adaptations they were hoping for. So, I guess where I'm going with this is that you get these guys that have been running for years and years and years and challenging themselves at various intensities and various distances. They're just well oiled machines. They just have this capacity to be successful. And again, you're looking at their competition, you know. If you put Atkins together with Albin, you see these guys are very competitive with one another because they're basically eating from the same plate. They both understand that for them to be successful, they do what they've been doing for years and years and years.
1: Okay, so operating from the belief, or not the belief, from the, the, the factor that there's somebody like me and there's lots of people like me in this field who are wanting, you know, striving to make that leap, uh, those consistent steps to that level to where John Albin is or Ryan Atkins is. Um, and we see that there's the obvious step, which is you need to develop your aerobic foundation until it's obscene like theirs is there, um, not for trying to find a shortcut or anything, but with a race that's so short, do you think that there is a way uh, a different option other than just developing a massive aerobic engine. Like should somebody be emphasizing, I was just talking with Yancey actually, and he is of the, uh, of the thought process right now. And we didn't talk at great lengths about it. So there might be holes in the way I pitch this. So if you want to know about it, talk to Yancey, but he's thinking about training his athletes, um, tampering on with the idea of training his athletes who want to do the, the, the three K championships, uh, very similar to the way you would train a, a mile or a 1500 meter guy because they even though you know a 1500 meter race is over in you know roughly four minutes and the 3k is over in roughly 15 minutes, it's the foot speed in between that is similar to a miler that you need in order to beat somebody like Alvin. And so uh, assuming that that's coupled with training that you know prepares you for more of a 5k time frame the Foot speed of a miler is what he's thinking needs to be developed, and I know milers run large amounts of volume. Um, maybe just slightly different than somebody who's training for like a, a 5k or a, even a 10k, but uh, I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: Well, uh, I think a lot of things about that. <laughs> first <laughs> sure of all, do. yeah, first of all, I may have misspoke when I kept referring to this aerobic engine. What I really should have said. And where I hang my hat is in in developing the efficiency in the way you move. So Mm -hmm. that is important regardless of whether you're going to run a 400, a 200, or an ultra-marathon. And I had this conversation with one of my clients that I spoke with just before this call where I'm looking at the analytics that she's providing me with in her training. And you may recall that I rant incessantly about motor skill development drills Mm -hmm. and I was looking at her MSD workout and it was awesome you know here's somebody that was not just drinking the Kool-Aid but was applying it yeah I I looked at her uh, and, and for those that don't know what I'm talking about these are these sessions where the entire focus of the session and training is to work at developing your Peak velocity minus error. Without making mistake, find as much speed as you possibly can produce, even for a nanosecond. It's not a function of trying to sustain it. It's a function of trying to develop as much speed as you possibly can without flaw. So what does flaw mean? Now, if you think in terms of a tennis player, anybody that's listening to this has probably at one time or another held a tennis racket, and hit a tennis ball. And you know that there's a sweet spot on the racket. When you hit the ball appropriately, the ball sails. When you don't, the ball will still travel over the net, but not with as much velocity or or precision.
1: That dreaded thunk sound.
0: Right. So, But the point I'm getting at is that I believe, I'm convinced, that the game of running is a function of recreating perfect footfall and that perfect footfall is going to yield greater and greater force production and it's the force production that is going to cause you to have that linear distance traveled per stride Mm. so when you talk about leg turnover now it's an expensive proposition and you can afford to spend a lot if the race is short so for example if you're trying to run a 40-yard dash you can afford to jack your cadence up to 220 strides per minute simply because it's not a function of you uh, developing so much lactic acidosis in the muscles that it's going to cause you to fail. If you're going to run a a 200, a 400, you know, and you fall on your face after you finished it because you're so burned up, it almost doesn't matter. But when you get into a point of actually a 400 or beyond, that precise contact with the ground is something that you want to aspire for because you're going to get more distance covered per stride at less cost of work. So right. the two things we're really speaking of is economy that is, is drawn from efficiency. If it doesn't cost you more to get more, you're winning. And so getting back to this concept of how you should prepare for a short-distance event, it really to me doesn't make that much difference. Obviously enough, the volume is important, but if you're throwing volume at something and you're not doing it well, you're actually teaching yourself to make mistakes. And when you reach for more speed, the mistakes become more profound. And so it's this precision in motion that I think is really, really critical that a lot of people don't see. And so then, then there are people that are inherently are capable. Of creating that precision, you look at some of these Ethiopian runners. Uh, uh, the guy that I love to speak of often is Galen Rupp. His contact point is so precise for a white guy. He's holding up to these Ethiopians and these Kenyans like no one else in this country. Do you and, have do you have like
1: a, a universal hmm. ground contact time that you like to look for in
0: people's runs? Well, well, it's generally associated with the stride frequency. So. Which is usually
1: 180, yeah. Uh,
0: well, now, and and again, that, that's a rabbit hole that some people want to carry me down and assume <laughs> assume that I'm a one-trick pony, that I'm telling people that that's the only cadence that they should aspire for. And I, I've often said that you should look at that cadence and that frequency as home, meaning, yeah. meaning that that's where you're safe and that's where you're most economical and that's where you're going to find the most efficiency. Okay. But there may come a time where you're gonna to wanna to exceed that frequency in right. order to break somebody down in a race or actually finish a race. When you see the finish line and you need to create more speed and you've exhausted your ability to create speed at that stride frequency, then I, I'm absolutely behind you to create the, the, the leg turnover you need to get more speed. I'll give you an example. Yesterday at the track, I had some people doing motor skill development drills for about 10 minutes. We preface that with some mobility and stability exercises to really make sure that the body was in a good place when they started to produce speed. And one of my guys who really is kind of a uh, I want to refer to him as a successful age grouper, he produced a 61 second 400 without violating 180 strides per minute. Nice. I videoed it. So I have the video. If you look Oh, is that at, the one you posted? Um I'm not sure. I that guy—he's
1: kind of a heavier set guy.
0: No, no. Okay. Tall if it guy. was that guy.
1: I was about to be really impressed.
0: <laughs> no, it's a tall guy with a beard. Okay. It was just a real quick. It was only like a 13 second snapshot of him coming around the turn in a 400. Okay. But but if you looked at his ground contact, it was absolutely precise. He was making really really solid ground contact, and he was getting tremendous play out of his out of his uh, running gate. And, I mean, you know. I mean, you know how tough it is to, to, to pull a one-minute 400. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, I mean, obviously enough, I don't think that by any stretch he was able to support that for a mile. Right. But the fact that he was able to pull it off very nicely for a 400, he could have probably sacrificed 10 seconds and pulled an 800 and maybe another 20 seconds. You know, here's a guy that's going to end up running a 430 mile. Yeah. Where where when I met him, he would have struggled to run six. Yeah. I don't offer him this credit due to the aerobic conditioning that he's he's done. And huh. I don't I don't offer it to the fact that he's been doing the lactate tolerance work. I believe that, you know, he does both of those, but the glue between those two metabolic consequences is the efficiency in the way he moves.
1: Well, that's very interesting. That's a very uh I've never I, I haven't heard you put it in a way that for me has driven it home exactly what you're saying there, but it's really driving home because I'm sitting here completely willing to put in the work on whatever route is required, uh, but always keeping my mind open to potential routes to achieve that and thinking, you know, you know, to be able to beat John Albin at the three K and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking the route is developing a massive aerobic foundation, obviously not junk miles and bearing it with threshold work and stuff, but you're saying a very, very important component. Like, almost uh make or break component of that is your ability to run efficiently now I was just watching a video that my buddy recorded of a race that I had with this other guy who's a great 10k guy his name's Art DeGraw in uh in Arizona and there was a terrain race I was doing and I've historically always just done the 5k because in my mind I'm thinking okay terrain race draws out really fast runners because the obstacles aren't that hard except for two or three of them that are way harder than anything Spartan has. And so because of that, I've always been prepared to lose because some dude who's a really fast runner just destroys me. And so I one time branched out to do the 10K the next day, and exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. This guy named Art showed up. And, you know, it's the beginning of the race and he starts passing me and I'm thinking, okay, it's just another one of those excitable people who sprint at the beginning, but he never slowed down the entire 10K. So I'm I'm hanging on for dear life, not thinking I'm going to win. He's pulling farther and farther away. I eventually was able to to overcome him at the end because he fouled up on an obstacle towards the end. I would not have beat him if it wasn't for that. Um, But in watching the video, you can see his running form versus my running form and Mine is pretty good, but, you know, there's some things, like, I'm not standing up as straight as I should, my arms are swinging a little too wildly, and he has this, like, effortless looking, gliding through the air much faster than me stride, but the one thing I'm not sure about is, Rich, I mean, you can see me, the, you know, listeners can't, but he had his arms, like, like this, and they never left this, like, he's, he runs like this, and I was thinking isn't his arm supposed to be here a little bit more and still maintaining the same thing, you know, not dumping at the bottom, but running like almost like a T-Rex, like really up there like that.
0: Uh, You know, I I know what you're talking about and uh, I don't know that I want to criticize it, um, but I certainly don't want to support it. Um, I look at, I, I mean, again, I try to look at this as a physics problem. Where are you going to put your, your body in space to glean the most efficiency, and if you're if you're harboring this tension in your traps because you're you're too um, you're too tight. So in other words, you know when you, you what you're exhibiting to me that people can't see is your thumb is very close to your shoulders. Um, you know you're referring to it as T-Rex. So yeah. that that is a little inhibiting to me. I would like to see a little bit more free flow, but clearly I don't want to have the arms cross the body. Clearly I don't want the shoulders to rotate. And these are the types of things that start to infect the way you're making ground contact. Mm. So um, I I like to believe that I'm a pretty logical guy. And I will never speak of something that I'm not 100% comfortable with or convicted by. And I I believe that at the end of the day, there's physics and it's difficult to argue with physics. Gravity is gravity. Grass is green. Sky is blue. It is what it is. And yeah. You you know you can could, you could want to argue with it all you want to, but at the end of the day, if the posture you have is opposing inertia, if you're uh, lending your foot contact ahead of your, your body in a breaking fashion, because your lower limb is extending ahead of your knee, it causes you to lay out to the outside edge of your foot, and then you're on the varus edge of your foot, and as you approach that foot, you're actually collapsing towards the ground until your body is over your foot. And then you have to recover from that collision and then produce work again. That's definitely going to inhibit your your efficiency. Okay. So your ground contact is almost the most important thing. Because, again, referring to, and I, I've probably said this a million times and I've had people that really thought it resonated with them, but I like to refer to being on the skateboard. If you look at uh, a kid on a skateboard intuitively, he's got that pillar that's given him stability, which is on the board. And then his opposing leg, which is going to be where the force is created, needs to make contact consistent with where the other foot is on the board. If he touches the ground ahead of his body, he's going to fall on his back. If he touches the ground behind his body, he's going to fall on his face. Yeah. So, so there's this inherent understanding of of stability and force production that's necessary for you to be able to propel yourself through space, on that board, and it's the same with running. So if you have so, a fault, if you have a fault, because, and by incidentally, if and a lot of people talk to me about their stride being, you know, let's say shorten your stride. No, you don't want to shorten your stride. You just don't want your stride in front of you. Yeah. Right? I I love when the stride opens up very nicely behind an athlete. If right. you if you look and they refer to hip angle. If you look at the hip angle of an Ethiopian or a Kenyan runner, when they're throwing down these sub-420-mile paces, their stride is so beautifully open behind them, but their contact point is very close to their center of mass when they land. Uh, And it's because, because of that that they're getting that extension behind them. And like a big rubber band, it draws that knee back up and forward, and they're able to recreate that stride. And they yeah. do it; it seems seemingly effortlessly. So, now,
1: do you ever track uh, like the ground contact time, like how long somebody's foot is spent hitting the ground?
0: Well, look at this. Okay, your your foot is going to be on the ground less time if it's closer to your body. Okay,
1: that makes sense because it's okay. not having a grip yeah. pull and go underneath. Yeah, yeah. You.
0: So, so that is why cadence is slower for overstriders because okay. their foot. It takes longer for the foot to get through the gait cycle because their contact is ahead of their body when they land. So I'm not really concerned about contact time. Now, I know with sprinters, they look at that because right. uh, their cadence is so huge to run a short-distance race. But it still comes down to the same thing. If you, if you violate your ground contact by sticking your foot too far ahead of your body, it's inhibitive. Yeah. And, and that also causes you to lean back. So the further ahead of your body you reach, the more likely you to, you're going to oppose inertia by leaning against the direction you're traveling. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you, and I'm kind of off tangent here and I apologize, but no, good. at the end of the day, here's what's happening. And this is, I think, where I got you and you had that aha moment a little go, a little bit ago. So I'm going, to, I'm going to re-encourage that aha moment. The metabolic consequence of work, it represents what, cost is associated with the way you're moving so obviously being aerobic is at less cost anaerobic is more expensive but your skill is what promotes the economy in either regard so it costs you less to be aerobic you could travel at a better pace aerobically if you're more economical and the same thing applies to being anaerobic it doesn't matter it's just a function of what energy system you're drawing from now, clearly, if you're into the lactate system too hard, so mm-hmm. when you're when you're over your threshold, the principal energy source is carbohydrate, and yep. by burning carbohydrate, you create more and more lactate, and then you're incapable of clearing it from the regional muscles, and then it becomes acidic, and now you got a problem.
1: Rich, but, are you are you pushing keto now?
0: No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Not. A, I mean, so again, you know, it, the, the whole know. thing. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like it's it's like a joke, but it. It, uh, you know, honestly, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. I yeah. Mean, uh, you know, guys that are, you know, jostling their nutrition. Uh, I'm just not a fan of that. I think that as long as your body's getting the substrates that are necessary for fitness, and I'm talking about supporting muscle tissue repair and appropriate amounts of energy coming into the system, you're mm-hmm. golden. Well, here, let me let me uh, take the
1: conversation towards vertical oscillation because that's something I wasn't even aware of until I went to one of your clinics. And I don't remember what the study was, any of the exact numbers, but they talked about how much – how many miles um, uh, across a marathon somebody actually gives up to crappy vertical oscillation where if they had – just like, I don't know, a couple inches less of vertical oscillation, they gained like one or two full forward miles if they would just fix their, I don't remember what the numbers were. The conversation
0: was in respect to a study that was done on Ryan Hall. Okay. And Ryan Hall uh, was, he's retired now, a premier American marathoner.
1: He's a big guy now.
0: Uh, And Ryan, uh, through the research they did on him, they, they looked at his vertical oscillation. They found him at about 4.6 inches of vertical oscillation, which translates because it's not a function of just going up. You still have to come back down per stride. Yeah. You're looking at in the neighborhood of 9 inches worth of Jeez. vertical loss,
1: right? That's terrible, right?
0: <clears throat> well, what they figured out, and, and now, mind you, I'm only referring to a study, and I, I don't know how valid it is, but let's just say, hypothetically, if it's true, they mm. figured that he gave way 3.6 miles oh. in a marathon oh. due to the vertical loss. Oh, yeah. And then so uh, on the other end of the spectrum, Bakile, when he ran the Berlin Marathon in 2004, they found his vertical oscillation at three quarters of an inch. There was oh. just v- virtually no waste of oh. vertical oh. hop in his movement. And he was able to run a 204. Someone might think that at that low vertical oscillation, he's basically shuffling. Yeah. Um, but I promise you, what eliminates that vertical oscillation is your ground contact closer to your body.
1: Wait, so I, I got this new, um, I finally just decided to be a big boy and get a chest heart rate monitor instead of the wrist-based one. Even though the wrist-based ones have gotten a lot more accurate, I figured... Why leave anything to question as to accuracy just for comfort? So um I got the the Wahoo Ticker X and apparently it tracks your vertical oscillation and your ground contact time. Now I don't know how accurate that is because I don't know anything about how to track that. But um on a a run I did on the treadmill, I don't remember it, was it a tempo? I don't remember what it was, but it said that my vertical oscillation was between nine and thirteen centimeters. And with what you just told me, that's Uh, What is that, like three and a half inches to like four and a half inches? So I
0: think uh, I'm not very good at centimeters, but I I know that just uh, because of a conversation I have often, seven centimeters represents about uh, one and three quarter inches.
1: Okay, so assuming it's accurate, I'm not too bad.
0: Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but uh, (laughs) it's basically an accelerometer that they're putting in. I mean, I'm assuming that's the technology. Okay. The accelerometer is trying to determine where you're, where you are in space relative to the hang time and what have you. I don't. I mean, Garmin has some similar analytics that they punch up: uh, ground contact time, vertical oscillation, all this kind of stuff. And I've done video analysis on people where I have a really accurate way to measure their vertical hop while they're running. And uh, I, I, I have to tell you, I'm at ends with it. I think that what from what I get from people. And what they portray themselves as, as have, having been done with their uh, monitor, it's uh, it's skewed. Let's just say that okay. it's skewed. Now, so the other thing you you referred to, and, and it's been a bone of contention with me, is these uh, optical sensors on the watch. Now, what as a matter of fact, I had this conversation with uh, through social media. With uh, I'm, I'm doing a training group right now called Crush the Run. I got about sixty-seven athletes in there. And, uh, you know, I, all, I'm looking at analytics on all of them. So they're, they're very much keen on making sure that everything is right. And they're asking about, you know, is it okay to use this monitor that I'm Now, one guy came back and says, when I run a mile, my heart rate in the first, you know, three minutes is really, really high. And then it settles down. Does everybody have that same problem? Uh-huh. So, so the question comes back, well, are you using a chest strap or are you using the, uh, the, the watch-based system? It turns out he's wearing the watch. He goes out and buys a chest strap. It completely changes. Right. So he started wondering whether there's something wrong with him because of the heart rate response. Mm. What they don't tell you is that if you're cold, mind you, if you live on the East Coast and you go out for a run outside and let's just say it's 40 degrees or lower and your skin is pretty cold, that's going to cause a change in the blood flow in your wrist. Huh. And, that, and that's going to influence the heart rate response. I've never heard this, ever. How is this possible? I've never heard this. And if you were uh, running along and light was capable of getting beneath the watch, mm. the light is going to mess with the, the, the light that's being directed from the, uh, the watch. Right. And it's going to inhibit the heart rate response. If you grab hold of something, so let's say you run and then pick something up heavy or you do burpees, you can expect your heart rate to dump dramatically behind that. So from a standpoint of convenience, if you were just to, you know, you're getting a good sense of what your heart rate is when you're running, yeah, it works out pretty well. But uh, there are some flaws that I'm not comfortable with, especially in this sport. Um, So I generally have all of my clients get a chest strap.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I finally jumped on board because uh, my my Polar watch uh, for I didn't realize it, but for months was uh, for just under a quarter mile every mile, underrating how far I was running, and so I just kind of thought it was right when I started or right when I was just getting really fit for TMX, and so I assumed I was just getting slower at running. And, uh, I finally, one time I ran with my phone and turned on Strava instead of my watch and then the exact same run I always do. And it said it was like two and a half miles longer than my watch was saying. Oh, man. So
0: it, not, not that piss you off. Oh I, dude. I mean, for look, months, look for at months,
1: I was like, you're telling me I can only run six miles in an hour at an easy pace. That's flat. Are you kidding? I was so mad. I was like, wow, Benny, you suck and should quit at life basically.
0: There, there, there's, there's only one thing worse than no information and that's bad information, yeah. you know, or, yeah. or partial information, you know,
1: which no, no hate on polar obviously to make incredible products, but, uh, the polar M 600 finally crapped out on me. So, um, I'm looking for a new watch that is waterproof, plays music internally. Uh, and obviously, well, I don't really care about the heart rate part of it. Cause I'm just going to connect it straight to my, uh, my chest chest strap now, but on on the lookout for that, but on that note, actually, well, not quite that note, but uh, this episode of Obstacle Dominator is sponsored by Zevia. <laughs> <laughs> I always got to throw Zevia in there. Man. What is that? <laughs> what are you drinking? Mm. You really you don't know about Zevia? Oh man, we're gonna do a commercial shows, now. Shows no shows what a uh, what an avid listener of Obstacle Dominator Richard Diaz is.
0: <laughs> you know, dude, I don't have time honestly. I I don't have time to do my own podcast, let alone listen to somebody else's. It right. takes the same length of time, you understand,
1: right? You're hurting sweet, sweet Benny's feelings. Um, <laughs> well, I, you
0: know, we did. An, I thought we did an amazing interview at World Championships, and I've been waiting for that to come out. How long has that been, a month? <laughs> yeah, get this shit out of the can. It's, it's coming out next week. But um,
1: uh, Zevia is just like a really healthy soda. There's only four ingredients in it. It's carbonated water, stevia leaf extract and for everybody who doesn't like the taste of stevia shut your face because it doesn't taste like stevia and you're like yeah it does no it doesn't hold, hold, up,
0: hold up they're not sponsoring you no but i
1: love them okay stop
0: talking about them <laughs> hey make i am trying to get them on board they won't do it make them pay you <laughs> i'm know, trying to it's I'm, not try, working. I'm trying to get mccallan scotch to sponsor my podcast or maybe hmm. uh, a cuban cigar company i don't know so uh um, now that we've had a commercial let's can we do one more (coughs) let's do it all right first of all i'm going to austin texas december 8th 9th 10th i think it is that weekend we're doing that's the last clinic of the year that's awesome and then however i'm extremely excited that we're bringing back the super clinic that we did last year last year i had Yancey out to help me out which was great I enjoyed having him uh, as a wingman with me. Um, not bringing him out this year for no other reason than it's just finance. I just want to make sure that this time it all works. Uh, it was an expensive proposition, what we did last year. But, it was you know, nothing against Yancey. We had a great time. I enjoyed having him out. Unfortunately, he broke his foot on the beach. But uh, oh. all that put aside, this is an incredible clinic because – if, you're, if you ever had a sip of my Kool-Aid, this is the place to visit. Because we're going to start here in my lab. We're going to do all the testing. We're going to bring out the dry race board. We're going to talk about training. We're going to talk about developing the energy systems. We're going to work on injury stuff. And then we're going to wear people out for about a day and a half here. Then the very next morning, we're going to get up and we're going to go to the track. We're going to get some video on people on the track. Not to mention I'm going to get video peop- on people in my lab. And then we're going to knock this thing out. We're going to get this, this running mechanics thing organized. Then we're going to go to what we for- call the Gulch of the Gods. Not my term. That was VJ that named it. But this gulch that we train in has a solid one-mile trail. I mean, there's more trail than that, but I, I have this one-mile marked off. And we have these hills that we can hit because we're here. I have toys. We've got wreck bags. We've got slam balls. We've got buckets. We've got ropes. We can recreate an obstacle environment to practice how runs should look like going into, out of obstacles, including the the way you approach or descend off of a hill. And then the following day, we're going to go into the Santa Monica Mountains. We're gonna do probably in the neighborhood of a five-six mile mountain trail run, and then we're gonna come down and we're gonna hit this sand dune. Did you visit the sand dune while you were here? Off no. Oh my god, dude, the sand dune is nuts. It's about 200 meter climb at about a 40 percent grade. <laughs> uh, the sand is like to you, well past your ankles going up. It's that nice soft sand. And we bring the buckets and such there. So we do some heinous carries up this sand dune. When everybody's about to die, we cross the street, go down on the beach, and we start doing what I call the sugar cookie workout. (laughs) Calisthenics, in the ocean, back into the calisthenics, in the ocean, back into the calisthenics until people are begging to go home. (laughs) And that goes on for three days. It's, you know, I mean, there's no better environment. We're talking January. these East Coast people that might be listening to this, last year it was about close to 90 degrees in the middle of January here. And what? We, yeah, and we're swimming in the ocean, okay? <laughs> okay? So that's all I could say about that. There's still room for both of those clinics.
1: You and, didn't give the
0: dates. Well, th- they should visit naturalrunningcoach.net Mm. Or they can go to Diaz Human Performance, dshumanperformance.com. Either one of those sites has the information on them. But uh, you know, because Richard Diaz
1: just has so much damn knowledge, he needs two URLs to fill it all up.
0: Well, you know, one of them talks about a lot of different things, and one of them is very specific to OCR. So yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. Know. I probably shouldn't have done it that way, but uh, and I probably will cure that problem sometime soon in two thousand nineteen.
1: But, I doubt that you, you and I were talking about that like two and a half years ago. <laughs> nah,
0: dude, I'm telling you, I, I suck when it comes to trying to manage my, my, my situation here. It's because I'm too busy. I mean, I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting, you know what? I, and I'll share this with you in January. I'll get my first social security check. I'm a freaking old man, dude. I've been doing how, this. How old are you? I'll be 66 in December.
1: Whoa, I dude! I swear you've told me your age before, and I do not remember you being over like fifty or something.
0: That was probably the last time you
1: saw me, bro. Fifteen years ago. Holy shit, dude! You're a you're a great looking, active dude for sixty six. That's nuts.
0: That's old, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's like that's like the age I talk about when I I tell people I'm just gonna drive off a cliff and end it all.
0: So when somebody yeah when somebody is is like disenfranchised and they're trying to get a date on e-harmony or something like that, and they're 66, what they do is they put black shit in their hair and they say they're 55. Yeah. Because 66 is not sexy on paper. It just, yeah. It just conjures up some really, really old dude.
1: Well, you're, you're one digit away from the devil there, so.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'm blessed. I'm blessed that I'm, I'm still able to be upright and move around and, and have a career that I enjoy, and I'm not looking to, to retire from it anytime soon.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great, dude. you provided uh when did, when did you come into OCR? Because you really changed the game in that you you were a huge component in making it even for the weekend warriors into a structured, intelligent approach to, you know, physical activity.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I, I think that there's still a lot of work to do. It's been a short run so far. I think it's probably been about four years now. Mm. And I blame Hunter. He, he's the one that kind of introduced me to the whole thing. And and huh. Him and I working together, kind of showed me that there was definitely something to do here.
1: I've actually never heard that story. Where? Uh, how'd you meet Hunter?
0: He contacted me. He reached out and got a hold of me and said he needed some help. And uh, we got together and and uh, we found a fit. And we worked quite a lot in the early years. And and uh, got to know him pretty well. Got to know how his body responds to work pretty well. And. And uh, you know, I, to be frank with you, I miss him. I, he got off into this TMX and got off. I think I helped him a lot for TMX. Yeah. But, but he got off into this uh, this uh, CrossFit world, and you know, to me, honestly, I I don't want to offend anybody, but weight training to me is boring. I mean, huh. as far as an education is concerned, I've I've been down that road. I mean, I've owned health clubs, I've done all the certifications. Trust me, I, I've trained people with weights forever. And to me, it's like the most boring proposition. Even Where, Olympic lifting? Well, I'm not saying that it's not appropriate. I'm not saying that, right, I, right. that I'm against it. I'm just saying that for if someone was to come see me, for me to teach them to lift weights, I would be bored to tears. Huh. I would be bored to tears. Now, now Hunter would come and we would fashion some strength-related workouts that are multi that we throw in, the running and the intensity and you know, we we select about three or four different exercises that we would do together, um, and that's kind of fun. Uh, but it's it's just the the multifaceted challenges which are which I find very entertaining.
1: Right. But,
0: but just to be a strength trainer, or like a personal trainer, uh, I, it just makes me want to throw up. And, and again, I apologize to those that I I might have just offended. But
1: well, for know- me,
0: it just doesn't work.
1: I don't think you need to uh, – you can wipe your tears about Hunter because he – it took him like three or four months of saying, yeah, I'm out of mud running before he's like, all right, I'm back in, guys. So uh, I don't know if he's officially announced this anywhere. I think he did on one of the Obstacle Dominator episodes, but I don't know if it was clear enough. But Hunter is definitely back. He's not diminishing his attack or his approach to CrossFit. Uh, it's kind of pending on what the hell they do with this new format with regionals. Um, but uh, – Going to Spartan Worlds and seeing the race, especially how they shortened it, he's uh, he he fell in love with it again. So the fact that he fell in love with it so quickly again after leaving makes me think it's got a bigger place in his heart than he thought it did. Which means I, I don't think he's ever gonna leave the sport once he comes back. Obviously, you know, as long as it's still fulfilling the way it is for him, but um, he'll definitely be back. Especially, dude, you can you can bet he's gonna hit you up after he's all this CrossFit
0: stuff. He, we've already we've already had that plan.
1: Nice, and, nice.
0: And, and, you know, and I knew it was coming. And yeah. to be honest with you, between you and I, the World and Defense Post, I told him early on that aside from what he felt was a lack of financial gain in in the type of races that he, he was weaned on, um, I told him it was more than that, that his personality in the sport is missed. For him to leave it was a big mistake because – I think there's going to be something that comes to this sport. And it may not be tomorrow, but it'll be in the in the near future. And no. he needs to be there because people love the guy. And they and I think that he brings something to the game that a lot of guys don't bring. So I'm looking forward to getting him back in the lab and turning him back into a runner. Yeah. And again, we've had this conversation, him and I. As a matter of fact, I was going to call him this morning to find out what his schedule looks like. Uh, last I spoke to him was before I went to Europe and he said he was still stuck in New York on that project. And as soon as he got home, that he'd hit me up and we, we'd, uh, schedule some, some time together. But yeah. anyway, yeah, I, I'm excited to see him come back into the sport. Well, yeah. look, Benny, I, I hope we covered pretty much the stuff you wanted to cover. I know we yeah. got off point a little bit, but that's okay. It's good talking to you. Yeah. And, uh, folks, I hope to get a little bit more diligent with my podcast. Uh, I'm on the mend and my throat's getting better. So i um, looking forward to doing a little bit more. We're actually got some really good stuff coming. As a matter of fact, it's been a little slow in coming, but I've got a couple of very powerful people that I'm bringing on to discuss mechanics and body and movement and such. And uh, I'm, I'm really going to go down that road quite a bit these days, as opposed to just interviewing amazing people like Benny, because uh, I think people look at my show, more for hoping to find some education. And uh, I'm going to try to continue to deliver that if I can. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.